Alex Steffen is a prolific writer. He's a public thinker, and he's performed two TED Talks. He's an expert in climate change and how our cultures will have to shift in order to combat climate change. done a few TED Talks, which are awesome, by the way, I was mentioning. Thank and you. those are, yeah, they're truncated. It looks like you have to get a lot of information in um, in 10 to 12 minutes or 10 to 15 minutes. But we have a little more time here today. So I thought if you could start by telling our listeners what your work's about and, and what you find fascinating and, and just start there. Yeah, I'm a planetary futurist, which is a job title I made up. That's great. Um, and... Uh, what I do is I think about humanity and the planet and the relationship between us and the larger systems around us and how those things are changing or could change in the future. Um, I came to this work through the process of being an, first an environmental journalist and then being involved with sustainability and sustainable design. Mm-hmm. And I ran a project called World Changing, uh, which was solutions-based journalism around sustainability and social innovation for seven years. Uh, and uh, in that process, found that there were a whole panoply of amazing solutions, amazing people doing amazing things all around the world. Yeah. And that, nonetheless, things were still getting worse uh, at a pretty rapid rate. And so if, in fact, we're surrounded by great ideas, great things we could be doing, but we're still not solving our problems, what then is wrong? And so I've become more and more interested in the cultural side of these questions, more and more interested in um, who are we, who do we think we are, how do we connect with each other and how do we envision the future? Because I really think that the future is, and how we look at it, mm-hmm. is the key to being able to make the kind of mental and political and cultural shifts that we need if we're going to solve giant problems. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the future is entirely a cultural object. Yes. It doesn't actually exist, right? It's um, just something we imagine. Right. So we're trying to project what it will be like. Exactly. And you're you when the, one of the first podcast, oh, sorry, TED talks I listened to and watched you perform that kind of mathematically there's a problem with the solutions that are being employed and deployed right now because they're not taking into account the uh, population growth. And so the problem by the time it would solve it wouldn't solve the new problem because it hasn't kind of been modeled out. Yeah. Are you still working on that? Yeah. So um the way I describe these kinds of problems is that they're steepening problems. So uh-huh. they're problems where when we fail to completely solve it now, it becomes more difficult to solve it next year. And it'll be more yeah. difficult the year after that. Um, so, for example, with climate change, we have what, what scientists call a carbon budget. Right? There's a certain amount of CO2 and other greenhouse gases that we can emit before we trigger a given level of of Uh, rising temperatures Mm -hmm. the problem is that that budget we're spending it down so Mm -hmm. every year that we don't act on climate change the actions we need to take the next year become bolder and more aggressive Mm -hmm. and if we don't act 
The following year, they become bolder and more aggressive still, until we get to these points where nothing short of really dramatic change will actually get us where we need to go. And we're surrounded right now by a number of those kinds of problems, which are different than the kinds of problems that we're all used to solving, right? There are a lot of problems where if you don't solve them, it's bad, but they don't get worse yes. necessarily. Uh -huh. And so we are in this new era where we're surrounded by steepening problems and sort of exponential increases. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a, a new and difficult thing to think through. So do you think people don't think it through? Do you think people kick it down the can down the road? And do they think that there's going to be a Hail Mary, you know, in 150 years as some sort of yeah. pass that gets solves it all? What are they thinking? What are people yeah. thinking? What am I thinking? What are they thinking? Well, I mean, I, I think there are a huge array of ways that people are responding to this because, as I said, it's a cultural question and culture is diverse yeah. and, and people are different. Mm -hmm. um, and I think even different personality types, for example, have different responses to the problem. Um, there's definitely a group of people who feel... Uh, that the problems we face are too hard. And so therefore, if they're going to get solved, they're going to get solved by miraculous means, right? Whether that's mm -hmm. some technological breakthrough or moving everybody to Mars or whatever, right? That's something right. really that we can't yet see um, will emerge and solve the problems. Right. Um, I personally don't believe that. Uh, and I think that, well, the reason I don't believe it is because I'm... Uh, familiar with the history of those ideas. And I know that those ideas are just as cultural as any other in our society and that, in fact, they're quite old, right? And many of those ideas are like 100 years old. The idea that we would, for example, have colonies on other planets all over the place and just travel around and zip around, um, you know, is, is not a good understanding of how big space is and how empty it is and how hostile it is, you know? Uh -huh. um, and the idea that, that there are technologies waiting just around the corner that will like let us ignore physics and the, the the sort of the chemistry and the physics of natural systems that all life depends on is not a really good bet right uh -huh. that that's a it's a it's a um you know it's a it's a it's a dream not a actual plan yeah perhaps like the, <clears throat> the people think that there's going to be a new water exactly Exactly. Uh, like, you know, yeah. I mean, people, there are a lot of crazy thoughts out there right now, but, uh, the, there is another part of this though, which is that there are people who benefit from our not being able to imagine a successful future. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, one of the largest PR efforts in human history has been to convince people that climate change is not real. Mm -hmm. um, and when you add sort of other related kinds of issues, it, 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 you can see there's a huge pattern there of trying to, uh, you know, befuddle and even, uh, you know, deceive uh, people about what is and isn't real. And that's because if people, I mean, there are internal oil industry documents that literally say exactly this, that if people understood climate science, they would force a change, uh -huh. you know, because it's, it's such a big set of issues and it's looming so rapidly. So it's in 
the interest of people who are invested, for example, again, in high carbon systems, oil companies, coal companies, uh, you know, uh, some car companies, etc., to play for time, mm-hmm. to uh, try and keep people from imagining, from both understanding the nature of the problem, but also imagining solutions to it. Right? And so you have this combination of denial of the problem, but also lots of darkening of the future in our culture. There's lots of um, you know, post-apocalyptic kind of stories and lots of, uh, you know, lots of support for stories that, in which humanity fails. Um, because if you don't think things are ever going to get better, you certainly won't make them better. Yeah. Um, and I, part of what I'm trying to do with my own work, and, and, and you know, I feel like I'm part of a movement of people doing this, is I'm trying to help people understand that not only are these problems really real, but that there are things we can do about them. That there are, there are much better futures that we can create. That the future is not only not necessarily apocalyptic, it could be much better than the present. And that in order to do that, we need to have different kinds of conversations and different kinds of cultural conversations and different art that helps people understand what that means on an intuitive level. Because these are such big, complicated, deeply systemic issues yeah. that trying to argue people into understanding of them is just, it, 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 it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's the work of decades to really understand things at a planetary level, and we don't have decades to educate every person on Get Earth. Get people on board. Right, you yeah. know? So you, d- you were the executive editor of uh, World Changing, and that was from 2003 to 2010. Yeah. And you were a solution-based journalist. Yeah. That sounds awesome because, yeah. I mean, that, at the end of the day, you know, we've, we're pitching maybe the solutions gets through the noise a little quicker. Yeah. So uh, talk to me about that. Some of well, the so that, that's exactly, that was exactly the idea. That um, I had been an environmental journalist before that, which... Um, generally means telling people like really unpleasant news. We got a problem. We got a exactly. problem. Exactly. Yeah. It's all about alerting people yeah. to crisis. It wasn't getting through to folks. And I, I still think it's not getting through to folks. I still think telling people that something's terribly wrong and then giving them nothing to do about it is just not an effective way to have a conversation with humans, you know? But like, uh, but beyond that, it seemed to me that we were wasting a real opportunity, which is that when you talk about solutions, you go to a space where there are contributions to be made rather than positions to be defended, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not that there aren't arguments about different solutions that you can't, you know, it's not that you can't have a critical discussion about whether a solution does or doesn't work or is mm-hmm. or isn't good. But simply saying, hey, we've got this problem, how do we solve it, is a much different conversation than we've got this problem and these people are to blame. Mm-hmm. And while it's true that we do have problems and people are to blame for those problems, it is a much more powerful way to engage people to say, what do we do about this? Yeah, the, um, so the, the TED Talk is ted.com forward slash talks forward slash Alex underscore Stefan. Um, that one, you started to go through, I think, some of the clips of great solutions and some of the urbanization do you want to talk about some of those solutions you're you're coming up with or you've seen? 
Yeah, so I wrote a book in uh, 2012 uh, called Carbon Zero. And yeah. uh, the TED Talk that I gave in 2011 was essentially a sneak peek of that uh -huh. book. And uh, in that talk, what I am describing is, uh, is the way in which cities are really one of the big fulcrum points for how we change our relationship to the planet. And that's true because most of us live in cities now, um, and increasingly large percentages will over time. Um, but it's also true because cities are like are are where the economy really gets concentrated. So what we do in cities really determines the economy of the planet. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, cities that are very affluent and uh, are centers of innovation and trade are places where big decisions get made that end mm -hmm. up echoing. So what happens in places like San Francisco and New York and London, you know, and Tokyo has an outsized impact on the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And we know that it's possible to design cities to make them not only more livable, but to really reduce the carbon footprint and the materials use of the people who live in them. And so carbon zero uh, was an attempt to look at what could we do? You know, how could we densify neighborhoods to make them both more walkable, but also, uh, you know, uh, lower carbon footprint uh, places to live? Um, how could we look at things like building design to bring in like really good models of, of green building, like mm -hmm. the passive house standard? Mm -hmm. um, how could we think about transportation in a different way? Um, and of course, I wrote that before autonomous vehicles were really on the scene, yeah. but, uh, which has changed my thinking somewhat. Electric autonomous exactly, vehicles. Exactly, which I think is a potentially a, a real game changer. We'll see how, how things go. But um, I think that when you combine you know, electric AVs with dense walkable neighborhoods, the opportunity for people to give up their cars, which is one of the giant steps in mm -hmm. terms of reducing your carbon foot footprint, yeah. the opportunity for people to live car-free lives that are better and cheaper yeah. Yeah. Um, rises really fast. So if that plays out the way that it's looking like it could, yeah. then that could really change transportation in cities as well. Um, on top of this, there are, there are sort of lifestyle uh, moves that we can make that really go beyond what are we shopping for and go beyond sort of like small behaviors to, to larger choices. Um, and some of that has to do with how people choose to live. Can people live in smaller spaces that are much more, uh, that are much better designed and, and deliver a high quality of life because they're not designed to be your whole world? Mm -hmm. um, increasingly, people are doing that, right? People are living in uh, even micro apartments right. and finding ways to uh, to use that as a home base rather than like a complete suburban house the way we might have once yeah. thought. Well, can we maybe stop there? Not yeah. stop there. Let's jump from there. Absolutely. Because this is interesting. You mentioned a few things. One was kind of heating a home. This is actually one under TED Talk. Heating a home through the architecture. So, you know, I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure that the glass is all facing, all the windows are facing south, the south. And so all the architects listening need to kind of, you know, work on that. The zero heating, the zero furnace, 
kind of house? Is that what yeah. you called it? Exactly. So uh, this relates to passive house design, okay. yeah. which is a uh, standard that emerged in Europe, um, where the building itself, the envelope of the building, is super airtight. Um, so uh-huh. it, it's very well insulated. Uh, the, the alignment of the building is uh, carefully planned so that you get solar heat when you want it in the winter and not when you don't want it in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a handful of technologies like heat exchanger fans that allow uh, that kind of approach to work even better because you can keep air flowing in the building without losing any heat. Uh-huh. Um, so by keeping it super insulated and well sited and then moving air in and out of it, you can actually have better air quality even though all the air is moving through fans. Right. Um, and, and Maybe a few filters in between. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's like that's one example. Mm-hmm. And what about density? So you know, you live in Berkeley. You said you're from Berkeley. Yeah. And you know, we're here in San Francisco, and you know, you've got to go through a planning department that's pretty tough in both these places yeah. in order to get more density. You know, how do you? This is going to be a um, a sticking point for that kind of motion towards density. Is like, how do you get that through planning? How do you get that through neighbors? Yeah, well, um, I think urban planning is broken, especially here in the Bay Area. Um, We essentially have had a housing embargo for 40 years, which is why we have the housing crisis we have now. Um, We would have had a housing crisis even had Silicon Valley not boomed. Right. Um, And now that it is booming and now that we're drawing people from around the world who want to come live here because of that economy, it's making everything much worse. Mm-hmm. But the core of the problem is that we don't have enough housing. Right. And we're not building enough to even keep up with the increases in demand, much less build for everybody who already lives here. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we need to do is we need to really look at planning and decide whether the goal of planning is to solve problems or to give neighborhoods control because those are not necessarily the same thing. Um, right. when, when we have neighborhood planning, it ends up being planning by older, wealthier, existing property owners. Uh-huh. Right? They have specific interests. Mm-hmm. And it's not that, that we don't want to necessarily hear that point of view and include sensible you know, precautions in what we do, but uh, really clearly that model of community planning has failed to meet fundamental problems of housing supply, of providing better transportation systems and better streetscapes, um, of being able to encourage what building is done to be as good as it could be. Um, And I think really uh, it's prevented innovation. Um, West Coast cities in general are not very innovative in urban planning and development. uh, if you want to find out what's really innovative, you have to go to some place like, you know, Berlin or Hamburg or uh, Copenhagen or Stockholm, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or even London. Uh, we don't embrace the opportunity to make things better here. And I think it has to do with the fact that we give people, we give everyone who might be negatively impacted by something a voice. The, the oh. veto over <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> A voice is fine, but uh, but we give them a veto. Yeah, you know. So if somebody, a big voice, a vote, a, a veto. You know, if somebody 
just doesn't think they're going to like something that's happening several blocks away. Yeah, no. In our planning system, they can usually stop it. Yeah. You know, if they get sort of motivated enough. Right. But we need, you know, according to the state, we need something like 1.2 million more homes in coastal mm-hmm. cities just uh, to catch oh, up. Oh, oh, right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the magnitude of the housing crisis. Uh, so, so you can't get that if every single project has to go through months or even years of review, if it can be challenged at every level, um, and so forth. So we need a revolution in how we do planning if we're going to even pretend that we can do sustainable cities that are also affordable. Yeah. You talked about tent post kind of density you know, throughout a city, so that you, everyone can imagine that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are corridors. You know, Patrick Barber, who's uh, the president of Pacific Union, he was in here um, a couple of weeks or a month ago, I guess now. But, um, you know, along Geary Corridor for us here in San Francisco, there's already, you know, height limits that can be reached uh, or, or can be built too. Yeah. Um, so there are pockets where some of this can be done that's already to code or already com- could be compliant. Yeah. But like you said, the resistance uh, comes yeah. up. So, I mean... I, I really think we're going to end up needing some version of uh, Governor Brown's proposal for by-right development. Um, I think the model that we're going, which, which simply means that if it's legal, it can be built, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to go through endless debate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we're going to have to move to a model which is much more focused on uh, elevation and acceleration, right? So demand the highest standard, but then make it really fast and cheap to get permitted once you're willing to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I think we need is we just need to raise the standards so that if any building is built that way, it's going to be a pretty decent building and then make it really quick and easy to get the permitting so that we don't spend years on every project, which kills some projects just financially, right? Sure. And it especially kills any project that's aiming to be voluntarily like affordable, uh-huh. right? Because the profit margins are already low. Yeah. Um, so paradoxically... Uh, a lot of neighborhood planning produces luxury Expensive housing. buildings, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and the, so that's one thing I think we need to do. It's just that idea of elevation and acceleration. Mm-hmm. Another thing I think we need to do is uh, really embrace different ways of thinking about how people build in cities. So in Berlin, there's this model. It's not just in Berlin, but it's thriving there um, of what they call a Baugruppe, which is a building group. And it's pretty cool because what it is, is it's a bunch of people who want to live together, um, come together and they hire the architects and the designers and the, the, you know, and the contractors. And they basically find the funding and they get a building built and they, they, they co-occupy it. Co-occupy it. Like eight unit building or 25 unit building? Some of them are huge. Uh, And That is interesting. And it has a lot of advantages. One of them is that you save a lot of money if you're not paying a speculative developer to like build your home. Sure. Um, another though, is that people when they're designing spaces that they're going to live in and live in with people who they're getting to know or already know can use the space differently, right? They can design usable common spaces, mm-hmm. which means that their own units can be smaller because mm-hmm. they have actual, you know, common amenities that they're going to use and feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Right. So instead of having a, you know, kind of grotty laundry room in the basement with half the machines that are broken, like they can make a really nice laundry room that's well lit and comfortable and, and they're going to know the other people who are there. And, and so why would you have a, you know, a washer dryer in your apartment? Yeah. And obviously, you know, 
20 units sharing one laundry room is cheaper and more ecological. Uh And when you're doing these things, one of the things that you get the ability to do is design spaces that are much better because if you're if you're saving that money on your own unit, right? If your own unit can be smaller, it's still cheaper even to put really nice finishes and design into the common spaces than it is to for every unit to have that additional space. So a lot of these buildings are gorgeous, right? right. They're like amazing places to live. They 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 are like really nice luxury buildings, mm-hmm. but they're a fraction of the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Berlin, this approach has really taken off. It's now about 10% of all the housing built every year is built by these building groups. And I think that one of the possibilities there, first of all, it's a possibility for people who want to build their own housing, for people who want to change their own situation to live differently. Um, so I think that's really exciting. But more than that, it might be one of the ways that we could start to change the debate about housing and what it means. I think some of the opposition to development is based on the fact that there are crappy developers. There are developers who do bad work. There are developers who are only greedy. There are developers who don't care. So maybe if you're you know, building something that's designed not as a speculative, you know, profitable project, mm. you get an extra floor or you get a quicker permit review mm. or you get access to some financing from the city mm. or something like that. Mm. Um, Right now, it's almost impossible to do these kinds of things here just because of the whole way that the planning process works on top of the fact that, you know, just financing and, and so forth sure. are different in America than they are in Europe. Mm, what, how are they different? How do they differ in Europe? Well, I think one thing the is financing. They, from what I understand, um, they've just been doing this approach for long enough. It's been going on for like 15 years now that banks know what it is. Mm-hmm. And so they're willing to like give the loan. Whereas mm-hmm. here... Commercial lending for real estate tends to follow, a, you know, not to get too technical, but a pro forma, right? Like, this is the kind of building that does well with our loans, so you have to build this kind of building. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, one thing that we've seen is even in cities that have eliminated parking requirements in buildings, which is a really smart idea, parking still tends to get built. And it tends to get built not because the developers want it and not because the people who live in the building want it, but because banks won't lend to yeah. a building that's built without parking. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of those kind of challenges. Because that, that's the marketplace. The marketplace wants... They believe that's the marketplace. Right? The, lenders, well, the, the lenders have experience that tells them that's what's mm. true. You know? But it's not always true, clearly. Mm. Um, and, and so part of it is getting, figuring out how we get money into the hands of people who want to do things better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what are some of the other design ideas you, you've seen yeah. that are some of these that uh, make these solutions? Yeah, well, one of the things that I'm really intrigued by is what comes after uh, you know, the sharing economy or the on-demand economy and big data and sort of this whole idea that, you know, well, yes, I'm going to ride Uber, but they're also going to harvest all my data and... You know, um, and it turns out maybe track me, track my phone when I'm not using their service and mm-hmm. other things. Um, you know, there's a way of sharing goods that has that has worked. It's led to the creation of some you know unicorn businesses, but it isn't really how most people I think want to live. And I think that when you look at the ability of people these days to to share things better, 
you know? Um, not that long ago, I mean, I wrote about car sharing in like, well, I guess this is a long time ago, but uh, in the mid 90s. And at that point, it was a totally fringe idea because you had to like coordinate, you know, like with paper and pencil, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like with other sign people. up sheet. Exactly. A sign up <laughs> sheet. Who got the car and when what? and where it was going to be. And like, so, of course, like only people who are willing to deal with a huge hassle because they really believed in it would use it, right? Yeah. Well, there are a ton of things that are like that now where the experience that people have had of, communal spaces or common ownership or common usage of things have been triggered by like these ideas of how much of a hassle it was in the past to do them. And I think that one of the things that we're, that we're seeing is the rise of, of spaces and systems that people come together to create, you know? So uh, th this hasn't happened much here in the Bay Area, but you know, uh, like clubhouse kind of spaces are a big thing. Um, especially in Europe where people come together and they're like, you know, let's like essentially create like a private cafe for ourselves and, and, and our friends and we can all go hang out there and we can like have a community in this space. Um, and that makes, it makes total sense if you know how to coordinate and trust people, which frankly Europeans are better at than we are. But um, more and more, it can really work just because we have the technology to like mm -hmm. make the practical part of that easy mm -hmm. and I think we're going to see more and more sharing systems that are not being done for profit um, that are being done for mutual benefit okay here's an idea because you know the I think the argument that so many people do to scare people out of these um, solutions for climate change roadblocks you know is they say that's going to stifle commerce it's going to stifle the economy and that's where people get really heck, you know, a hiccup. If they're, you know, I've got to look at things. I, I guess personally, I got to look at things from both sides, and that's how I kind of can most evaluate. I think it's interesting too. But that's going to be an argument everybody's going to have, right? Yeah, I think it's Is an it, outdated argument. Pardon? To be honest. I think it's an outdated argument. I think that the okay, yeah, that, the that, upside is much bigger than that, the downside. That's where I'm going with it. It's like, yeah. how can these become, you know, what, what are the solution-based, you know, ideas? They're going to pr help provide uh, the economy to keep mo motoring on. Yeah. Well, so here in California, I mean, I think one of the things that's really exciting about being here is we have not only in the commercial sector, but also, you know, coming from government with our new climate bill and um, even at local levels uh, on specific things, we have a lot of attention being paid to what is the economy that we're building? What does a zero carbon economy look like? And we have had this, uh, you know, all the way since back in the days of like where people were arguing about cutting trees and there was like this loggers versus owls idea. Yeah. You know, there's been this, uh, this way of, uh, of uh, looking at things where, where people pit the economy and the environment against each other. Yes. But this is like, you know, I mean, leaving aside the fact that there is no business on a dead planet, right? Like leaving even that argument aside. All right. There, the wave of the future is a zero carbon economy because there's no future economy that can be high carbon. The physics of the planet won't allow it. So it's not a question of if we're going to be low carbon. It's a question of when. 
And that means that right now, places and companies and people who develop the skills and the products and the systems to deliver high prosperity but zero carbon lives are setting themselves up to, be, to take part in a boom. Mm. And if you think just even here in California, right, how many cars do Californians have? I don't know, but I, let's just ballpark, 20 million cars maybe? So all of those cars are going to have to uh, either be replaced with other options or converted into electric vehicles or, you know, um, uh, you know serviced as, as, as autonomous vehicles or whatever, right? Mm. There's going to have to be a change in all those cars because they're all unsustainable at the moment, mm. pretty much. And similarly, so there's a vast opportunity there, right? right? A vast. Conversion. Like shop. Yeah, I mean... Uh, conversions or, or just even swapping out the fleet, right? Just even like competitors to Tesla, right? You right. know? Um, but on top of that, like there's the whole question of what do you do with urban streets? What do you do with the spaces we're now giving to cars? And one of the things that I think is potentially revolutionary about autonomous vehicles is that many fewer cars can serve the same number of people mm -hmm. just as well. And that means that you also like are getting rid of a huge amount of parking. You're getting rid of a huge amount of road pressure, mm -hmm. which means we can use that space for other things. We can build on the parking. We can expand the sidewalks. We can create transit paths. We can do all sorts of things. And all of that takes effort and is going to make people money, right? It's not like... It's not something where we're just doing it if we're doing it right. We're not going to be doing it for charity. We're going to be doing it because it pays. It's a better way to do things. Yeah. And, you know. So then the will has got to be there for businessmen to take up the torch and yeah. say, let's run with this. Uh, the numbers have to be there. You know, to counter that, you know, we see um, where I work in the interior design world. Yeah. And I don't know, I guess. Maybe the jury's not totally out, but sometimes it's out. I've seen people do fantastic green buildings and they get about the same or they, they don't get any higher return for the people that do the more conventional building, you know, just down the street. So like they want, you know, people want to see the effort really tally up, not just for the good of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and another idea I thought of is, you know, I think maybe uh, the consumerism, like the throwaway economy, like it burns me up, Alex. Like I can't, I've got two little kids at home and the amount of stuff that comes in our house and the garbage that goes out, like I'm constantly throwing things away because I can't handle it. But that's not the right approach. Yeah. Um, there's this trend, I guess there are these like fix up cafes where people come in and like repair their old radios or repair their heater instead of throwing it away and buying a new one. Uh -huh. But, you know, the capitalist economy is going to leverage labor or it's going to leverage capital. If you don't have capital, you leverage labor. Perhaps new jobs are employing people, you know, managing more people, fixing more old things up. Yeah. Maybe that's an idea for you. Could be, could be. I mean, I, I'm actually very worried about automation and I think people are really... Um, being uh, unwise to ignore the extent to which already it's possible to automate jobs. Um, so there's the, I, I think the company called Otto, O-T-T-O, I think. Um, somebody can Google it. Uh, yeah. But there's this self-driving truck company, right, that right. has a viable product, right? right? How many truck drivers are there in America? I, I hear that the biggest employed, uh, you know, self-employed job. 
I wouldn't That's be surprised, I, right? A lot of people drive trucks. It's going to be a problem. Road. Those jobs are going to go away. Yeah. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that one of the things that on a societal level I think we need to be doing is thinking about how do we create meaningful work um, that's worth doing that has a real impact that can't be done by machines. Mm -hmm. And one aspect of that might be like more of a repair economy. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that one aspect of it is in really focusing on, on experiences, on uh, the, you know, one of the great advantages of living in dense places is being able to go experience things. And I think we're going to need, you know, to be thinking about, you know, how do we promote active light, nightlife? How do we promote public space? How do we get people out and about and doing things? Because that's where the jobs are, right? Um, and, and frankly, it's the kind of city that a lot of people want, right? A lot of people, at least, even if they don't go out that much, like to feel like they live yeah. in a place where they could go out, right? Yeah. And uh, so there's that, there's that problem. But I also think there's a real problem, you know, when you mentioned green building. Um, the, right now what we do is we charge a tax on people who want to do better projects, right? We, it's not an actual government tax, but it's the tax of having to bear the cost of innovation when your competitors are not. Right. Right. So if you just want to slap up a building that's the same as every other building that's been done in the last 30 years, but just with whatever most recent siding is out, <laughs> like that's easy. Like, you know, you, you know, practically cookie cutter. Right. But if you want to make a building that's actually, you know, both truly sustainable and is well designed and responds to the needs of the residents and addresses the street and is really just like a really good piece of work, mm -hmm. like you end up bearing, uh, you know, the designer, the architect, et cetera, like those people end up bearing all the additional costs of doing that work because, as you say, there is a premium, but it's pretty small, mm -hmm. right? It definitely does not pay enough to justify in pure economic terms focusing all your work that way, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have a lot of architect friends. I've been told this a number of times. Right? You have? Yeah. So, oh, yeah. And so the the... The solution to that problem is, uh, I think, frankly, it's a classic case where the key is regulation. We should say, if you are going to build a building that is this good, then we're going to make it so easy for you uh -huh. that, that if, in effect, we subsidize building good buildings, right? So if you build a building that is, you know, passive house standard green, um, you know, uh, Lead certified, you know, uh, affordable, right? Has yeah, affordable okay. units in it, etc. Has no parking. Um, if you build a building like this, we will give you a fast track approval process where you will have all your permits in three months. And then the, the cost savings for the developer of not having to sit on a property for three years sometimes as it goes through the process yeah. is enough to make it well worth paying yeah, that extra. There could be like a nice branding on that positive um, regulation or, yeah. or hero regulation. Or yeah, exactly. Something that, you know, because regulation sounds bad to like a, a builder, yeah. right? Yeah. But put it, you know, frame it differently. Yeah, yeah. Breakthrough standards or something, you know. And I think one of the real issues that we've had is, is we've gone through, you know, these decades of talking about sustainability where we focused on, you know, 
we focused largely on individual behavioral choice. That's been a big thing that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And we're now at the point where the changes we need cannot be behavioral. We need changes where everyone does it because yeah. there's just no time anymore. So, for example, you know, people talk about cars and they're like, well, but electric vehicles cost more. They have less range. You know, they have these other problems. Um, how do we get everybody to decide to buy one? Well, the answer is really simple. Like, and we're already moving in this direction at the state level. Um, you just don't make it possible to drive a non-electric vehicle. I mean, that's the answer. Is you just make every vehicle has to be electric, and then let the market innovate. You know, to fill all those needs. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of things like that that we could be doing right now. I think one of the approaches that we need to be taking here is is elevating the standard to what we actually need it to be. Right. So. Does it need to be zero carbon and affordable? You know, then let's make the standard for everything zero carbon and affordable, and make it a lot cheaper once you get there. You know, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I think is going to help us on that is the ability of more people to think in terms of the systems around us, um, and this is something I'd love to see designers tackling more, because we have this tendency. It's, it's human, right, uh, to look at the surface of things and not think about the interior, right? And uh, an example of that is we have a tendency to think about urban environmentalism being making more nature in the city, yeah. you know? But in reality, the vast, vast, overwhelming majority of the impacts of a city are elsewhere, right? They're they're elsewhere. They're elsewhere. The impacts yes. are elsewhere. You know, the impacts are elsewhere. They're they're concentrated in distant forests, in distant mountains. You know, they're they're tapping rivers that are that are on other continents sometimes, right? right. They're they're drawing all these resources out of nature at a vast scale, outside of our vision, uh-huh. and that there are, there are things that we can do that make the environment that make the natural systems in cities better but also make the performance of the city worse right and so you know if we have to choose for example between uh you know urban habitat and density the the solutions really straight i mean the 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 numbers break out really easily that we should always choose density because it's going to drop the footprints of the people who live there and, and end up producing much more environmental benefit as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, but the problem is we can see the habitat and we can't see those distant mountains, those distant rivers. We can't see the real impact we have. We can't see the backstory of what we do. And I think this is something that designers could really take up as a project and help people understand the scales of the impacts, the, the, the connection to things we don't see, to, to reveal the system behind what we're doing. Um, because part of what that does is it also helps people understand what is and isn't genuinely beautiful. Um, because I think there's a 21st century idea of beauty that's different than the idea of beauty that came before. Because I think we understand that if our beauty, if the beauty we surround ourselves with Um, comes at the cost of the planet, of, you know, people who are struggling to survive elsewhere, um, 
of it, if it comes at the cost of leaving our kids with a really profound ecological crisis and a climate that's you know, uh, you know, in runaway warming, that 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 is a really ugly beauty. Mm-hmm. No matter how visually aesthetically pleasing it is, it's ugly. And I think I think that is a conception that's just starting to really spread, mm-hmm. which is that beautiful is not only visually or aesthetically beautiful, it's also has beautiful integrity in it. Yeah, and so generations uh, kind of view all these topics differently. Are you seeing the, uh, the younger you know, college graduates, if you, have you considered that? Like, are, are they embracing at the same you know, 50-50 percentile that they might have in past generations? Or are they overwhelmingly looking at global warming and, and accepting it and knowing it's yeah. happening? Well, the numbers show that they are very definitely, that they get it, they um, believe in action, they're willing to sacrifice, uh, you know, especially when you look at the generation below millennials. Um, uh, the numbers are astronomic, right? Really? It's like, you know, 90% believe in climate change. I mean, mm-hmm. believe in climate change is such a terrible phrase because it's like, do you believe in gravity, right? But, right. Like, um, but you know, there it is. Uh, the, <laughs> you know, the thing that I find really interesting and somewhat disheartening is I've been told by younger people, I, I do a lot of public speaking, and so I'm often in rooms with younger people. And I've been told by younger people that one of the real problems is not getting people to be aware of the problems around them, you know, that young people are very aware. Yeah. It's that young people are increasingly in despair about those problems. So they're like shutting down being concerned about it because they just don't see anything that's going to improve them, you know? And to your answer is? Well, I mean, I think that uh, I understand the source of that feeling, you know? Um, uh, these are big problems and they can be very overwhelming and they're very serious and they have tragic components. At the same time, I think we are in a situation where it is optimism itself that is one of the most needed changes. That being optimistic is actually an action right now. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of things are allowed to happen because people don't believe they can be better. Um, And that a lot of the worst decisions we're making right now are being made because the people making them claim that there's no other realistic option because the politics won't let them change. And so saying, no, 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 we actually do have solutions and we insist that they change is a very powerful action in that system. Mm -hmm. So articulating optimism and hope and envisioning futures that can be better, I think is really important and powerful. Um, there's not enough of that happening. Better leadership. They need more leadership. Yeah. More modeling. Um, well, maybe we, could, we can wrap this. Cause this uh, we could, I could always spend every second of the day. Remember what I was saying earlier? <laughs> like This is like really what I do, but I have to pay the bills with interior design. Yes, jokes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My passion <laughs> of doing podcasts. <laughs> but... Um, the future craft. This is one of your, your new projects. Yeah. Do you want to discuss this? Yeah. So, um, future craft is doing futurism, um, but doing it with the engagement of the arts and design, right? So, it's doing futurism that's designed not to analytically describe a future state but to give people an immersive and intuitive understanding of what that state might be like. 
Um, and so it's not saying like, oh my God, you know, uh, let's, uh, let's file a big report on how robots and automation are gonna destroy American jobs. It's more about how might we visualize that for people or how might we tell a story um, about the future that helps people really understand that on an intuitive level, what it means. Um, and I'm currently doing a lot of work. We're about to launch a project on Medium, um, the, the publishing site, uh, mm -hmm. and people can find me there, Alex Steffen. Um, uh, and the project's called The Nearly Now. And it's a set of stories that are uh, what I call anticipatory journalism. Right, so they're, they're journalism about things that haven't happened yet. Oh, interesting. And uh, the goal there is to be able to explore in a more intuitive, immersive, you know, uh, uh, imaginative, imaginative way. way what some of these big changes are like. Mm -hmm. um, and to really be able to you know, bring people in on it in a way that they're able to, to have it be part of their own thinking and their own imagining of things rather than bombarding them with facts. Because we know that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't even work for the people who like being bombarded with facts, right? <laughs> just, um, and, uh, and I really feel like sort of all, of all of climate science, in a way, is one giant too long didn't read, unfortunately. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, and if we're going to get people to really understand the changes that are going on in society and with the planet... You're going to um, paint the picture. We need to paint a picture. We need to invite people into the world that's, that's emerging. And so that's the goal with Futurecraft and the Nearly Now is to uh, engage the biggest picture thinking in terms that are personal and imaginative for readers. Brilliant. Hey, thank you so much thank for you. coming. It's been You're a real pleasure. smart guy. Wow. Thank um, you. You've, you know, it's always impressive to sit down with somebody who's uh, an expert in this field. And this is such an important uh, work. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.